1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, and I'm gleefully reading the blacklist one book at a time. At the rate I'm going, it'll take 300 years to read all 12,000 of them. Feckin' hell, that's a grim statistic. If you do want to suggest a banned book for me to read, I'm on Twitter at CensoredPod. If you can support the show, you can find me on patreon.com slash censoredpod. Or just rate and review the pod on Apple Podcasts. This episode is about a book called And Where Were You, Adam? by Heinrich Bull. Published in German in 1951, it was translated into English in 1955 and swiftly banned by the Irish censors in January 1956. It's a very short war novel, telling the story of German soldiers in World War II on the Eastern Front. Bull helped create a new type of German literature after the war, Trümmerliteratur, or Rubble Literature. In this Adam book, Bull made Military Defeat and Retreat the central premise of the story. It's satirical, but gently and carefully so. Bull is isn't bitter, although he himself was an unwilling soldier in the German army from 1939 to 1945. He believed war was ridiculous and appalling, but as a fundamentally optimistic man, his writing was never entirely disillusioned. Perhaps German post-war writers living in a broken and occupied country couldn't afford to be too cynical. Part of the reason I chose Bull is because he has an important connection to Ireland I would like to look at. Between 1954 and 1973, Bull and his family spent long summer holidays in Ackle Island. He wrote a little book called Irishes Tagesbuch, translated as Irish Journal, about his experiences here. Not many significant European writers lived and worked in Ireland at this time, so I thought it would be fun to explore his vision of Ireland. I asked Dr. Gisela Hulfter to tell me more about Bull and Ireland, which I'll get to after we search for the smut. Dr. Hulfter is Director of the Centre for Irish-German Studies in the University of Limerick and Senior Lecturer in German. She's written about Bull's relationship with Ireland, so can tell us lots about it. Now there are two choices for the most notable drink of the book. Soda water or pale yellow apricot schnapps. Some of the soldiers order soda water in cafes just to have something to drink while hanging around. As the story is set at the height of summer, they find it too oppressively hot to drink alcohol. Those cafe encounters are so awkward and strained, showing how occupying armies create weird relationships of forced complicity. But Bull uses apricot schnapps to talk about military life in such a crafty, subtle way that i read this bit out from page 23. The schnapps was mildly tart, as well as cheap, pure and good. And it was very pleasant to sit by the window, look out at the sky or onto the road and get drunk. Intoxication was a long time coming. Schneider had to fight hard for it. It was necessary... Even in the morning, to consume a considerable quantity of schnapps in order to reach a state in which boredom and futility became bearable. Schneider had a system. In the first glass he took only a dash of schnapps, in the second a bit more, the third was fifty-fifty, the fourth he drank neat, the fifth fifty-fifty again, the sixth was as strong as the second, and the seventh as weak as the first. He drank only seven glasses. By about 10.30 he was through with this ritual and had reached a state he called raging soberness. A cold fire consumed him and he was armed to cope with the boredom and futility of the day. Raging soberness is such a great description. Sadly I don't have apricot schnapps, more's the pity, but I do have plum and cherry schnapps so that'll set me up nicely. I've spent longer than usual trying to work out why this was banned. Honestly I'm baffled. This book is not explicit or crude or even frank about sex. As a war novel, it's not in your face about violence or physical injury. There are no graphic descriptions of blood and guts to shock a delicate disposition. I'm quite surprised the censors noticed Bull's work at all. He was not particularly well known in Ireland at this time. None of his other books were ever banned, so he wasn't on their radar. This book is an example of when the censorship bingo card helps to keep my mind focused. If I didn't have a checklist, I'd never see anything that could be described as offensive. So the first moment I thought that might have upset the censors was on page 18, when a Colonel Bresson remembers his pre-war life as, weirdly, an etiquette teacher. His sole consolation during this period was the opportunity for an occasional affair with their wives, there was no risk attached to these little adventures, which didn't disappoint him, although they seemed to put the women off him. He had many affairs during this time, with all kinds of women, but not a single one had ever come to him or gone out with him a second time, although he usually ordered champagne. I know I should be familiar with the censor's mentality by now, but I can't fucking deal with this. How can that be anything other than hilarious? Bresson has a high opinion of himself and he must be passably attractive if women agree to have dinner with him. But in spite of buying them champagne, not a single woman sees him more than once. He's either dull as ditchwater or shite in bed. Of course, I could be assuming too much on the sex front because what does a fair mean here? Does bull mean dinner or dinner and shagging? And why am I reducing a well-written, mildly amusing paragraph in this book to sex? Honestly, reading like a censor is so tedious and restrictive when the authors are subtle. And you'll probably despair for the rest of the episode when I say that this is as explicit as it gets. An open reference to extramarital shenanigans is the most obvious reason the censors were offended. Possibly the reference on page 27 to a man with Quote, no use for women, unquote, was too honest about the existence of gay men. At least one member of the board, Christopher O'Reilly, was particularly sensitive to any mention of homosexuality. He kept a list of the books he had read and his reactions to them, and queer content frequently caught his eye. Unfortunately, his notebooks stop a few months before the board banned And Where Were You, Adam, so I cannot say what he thought of this book. Because I looked very closely I did find a few references to sex work as you would expect in a war novel. Of the three main characters Schneider, Feinhals and Greck, Greck is the only one who visits sex workers. His backstory explains how he came to be seen as sickly and ill. His mother apparently served nothing but potato salad at home and he became permanently and profoundly constipated. Word got round that he wasn't physically robust and the girls in his village avoided him. So when his parents gave him cash and the freedom to travel on his own, the first thing he did was search for sexual release. And this is from page 60. He soon got off the train in Hagen, took a room in a hotel and spent the evening feverishly roaming the town. But he couldn't find a prostitute in Hagen and left the next day for Frankfurt where he stayed a week. At the end of a week, he had run out of money and took the train home. On the train, he thought he would die. At home, he was received with shocked surprise. He had had enough money for a three-week trip. His father looked at him, his mother wept, and there was a terrible scene with his old man, who forced him to take off his clothes and be examined. It was a Saturday afternoon. He had never forgotten it. Outside all was quiet in those clean streets, so medieval and idyllic, warm and deep. The bells rang for a long, long time, and he stood facing his father and had to submit to having his body tapped by the old man's fingers. In the surgery. His father's hands kept tapping his body, that grey head of thick hair moving for a long time below his chest. "'You're crazy!' said his father and finally raising his head and he grinned softly. You're crazy. A woman once or twice a month is plenty for you. He knew his old man was right. I think that's just brilliant. It's so restrained and there's such economy of language. The contrast between the imagined overindulgence of Grec and the actual way it's described is just so delicious. But to be honest, that's just a reference to sex work as a way of explaining a character's development. It's hardly an ad for the joys of the flesh if the poor fecker is nearly dead after his spree. Some authors would have discussed the actual sex in depth, but Bull doesn't, so the censors really needed to get over themselves on this one. And the final sex moment, if you can even call it that, is on page 118, when an unmarried Polish girl falls pregnant by a German soldier. But I'd be surprised if the censors read that far looking to be offended. The board was banning hundreds of books in the mid-1950s. It would have been impossible to read them all. There is so little to offend on the sex front that I wonder if there weren't other reasons Adam drew the censor's ire... As I read this, I wondered if the references to shit weren't more offensive than sex to the censors. Bull isn't that interested in the body having sex, but excrement and bowels are explicitly discussed. The character Grec is in fact entirely defined by his relationship with his bowels. And this is from page 94. He held onto the wall, his naked bottom shivering and in his bowels that grinding pain would form and reform, like some slowly accumulating explosive that surely must be devastating in effect, but, when it did come, was always minimal, kept accumulating, kept promising to bring final release, while never releasing more than a tiny morsel of stool. Tears ran down his face. He no longer thought of anything connected with the war, although all around him shells were bursting and he could distinctly hear the trucks driving away from the village. A shell landed in the cesspool, a wave splashed over him, soaking him with that disgusting liquid. He could taste it on his lips, and he sobbed more bitterly than ever, until he noticed that the farmhouse was in the tank's direct line of fire. He tipped forward, ducked behind the walls surrounding the cesspool, and carefully buttoned his pants. Although his bowels were still convulsively releasing tiny amounts of that terrible pain he crawled slowly down the steep little stone path to get away from the immediate vicinity of the farmhouse. His pants were done up but he could crawl no further the pain was paralyzing him he lay where he was and for a few seconds his whole life spun around him a kaleidoscope of unspeakably monotonous pain and humiliation. Only his tears seemed important and real to him as they flowed freely down his face into the muck, that muck he had tasted on his lips, straw, excrement, mud and hay. He was still sobbing when a shell hit the centre beam of a barn roof and the great wooden structure with its bales of pressed straw collapsed and buried him. That might seem like a long excerpt, but I've actually shortened the terrible death of Grek. In fact, there's nearly two full pages on the final indignity inflicted upon him by his bowels. If you're looking for honesty and bodily functions in Burl, it will be about shite rather than sex. But I don't know what Irish censors would have thought about this. Excrement isn't as commonly used as sex by authors wanting to shock. Maybe the focus on bowels would have been just a bit too much for them? Or maybe they suspected blasphemy from the title. The title is explained in a quotation at the beginning of the book, and here it is. A global catastrophe can serve many purposes. One of them is to provide an alibi when God asks, And where were you, Adam? I was in the war. I can't see anything wrong with that, but what do I know? Bull was himself a practicing Catholic, so blasphemy seems kind of unlikely. Look, I just can't work out why it was banned. The board in the 50s was banning extraordinary numbers of books. In 1954, two years before this was banned, they examined 1,217 books and they banned 1,034. So about 85% of the books they considered were censored. That was mental. From 1951 to 1956 was the time of the harshest censorship. Was it coincidence that the board was composed entirely of Catholics at this point and chaired by a priest? Doesn't look like it. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewellery, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. The last aspect of Bull's book that the censors may have objected to were pages 95 to 113, a description of a concentration camp. The board had a history of banning books about concentration camps. In 1954, Ellie Aaron Cohen's analytical attempt to understand human behaviour in the camps was censored. But what about Bull's chapter could have offended? It's a remarkable chapter and worth reading the entire book for, in my opinion. The camp commander, SS Captain Philskite, is a choirmaster turned genocidal murderer who saves prisoners with good voices from the gas chambers. When prisoners arrive, he auditions the doomed men and women for his choir. Philskite is the first military man, Bull describes, who has zeal or passion or ideology and I think that's a telling choice. When a woman prisoner sings a Catholic litany in a voice of astonishing beauty for Phil's kite, he cannot bear it. And I'll just read out the very end, page 113. Sancta Trinitas. Catholic Jews, he thought. I must be going mad. He ran to the window and flung it open. Outside they were all standing there, listening, not a soul moved. Phil's kite could feel himself twitching. He tried to shout, but from his throat came only a hoarse, toneless rasp, and from outside came that breathless hush while the woman went on singing. Sancta Dei Genitrix. With trembling fingers he picked up his pistol, turned around and fired blindly at the woman, who slumped to the floor and began to scream. Now he had found his voice again once hers had stopped singing. "'Wipe them out!' he screamed. Wipe out the whole bloody lot and the choir too. Bring out the choir. Bring it outside. He emptied the entire magazine into the woman who was lying on the floor and in her agony spewing out her fear. Outside the slaughter began. Fuck but that's remarkable. I don't really want to talk about why the censors didn't like this but I suppose that's the premise of what I'm trying to do here could it be the same reason Phil's kite lost his temper? The combination of Catholic faith and a Jewish body? Maybe the collision between two mutually contradictory identities was too much for the censors. Irish Catholicism was as anti-Semitic as other Christian denominations in Europe. In 1904, in Limerick, there was a pogrom instigated by violent rhetoric from Catholic priests. Casual anti-Semitism abounded in the newspapers and the books people read. Add that to nationalism that emphasised the uniquely awful oppression of Irish Catholics by the Brits and you have a population with very firm sectarian views. That Ireland's Jewish population was tiny didn't matter, since hate thrives on imagined bogeymen even better than on real fears. During World War II, the Irish government preferred to admit Christian that is, Catholic, refugees over Jewish ones. And the wartime censorship regime kept everyone ignorant of Nazi atrocities, because politicians wanted to remain morally neutral. It was a classic both-sides argument. When the censorship ended in 1945, many Irish people found news about the concentration camps hard to believe, Perhaps the 1950s censors had emotionally complex reactions to stories about the camps and didn't want to confront that cocktail of guilt, shame, horror, disbelief and despair. I mean, I don't know. In a censorship regime of such unrelenting strictness, it's hard to draw conclusions. If they hadn't banned nearly everything, these would be easier arguments to make. Anyway... Before I do censorship bingo, I want to talk about Heinrich Bull's relationship with Ireland. It's a quirky tale of coincidence and artistic yearnings. I first asked Dr. Gisela Hulfter to tell me about how Bull came to spend his holidays here in the 50s.
0: Well, I think he had a great liking for Irish literature already beforehand. And in fact, he says somewhere that the very first book or one of the first books he ever read was or was given was a book of Irish fairy tales. And even in his early writing in the late 30s, he is actually mentioning Irish fairy tales. And he was a great fan of um, Swift. And another piece of his early writing is kind of a rewriting of Gulliver. So he had that already even before the war, when he was completely unpublished and just, I mean, hardly out of being a teenager, kind of an early adult. And he came to Ireland in 54, I think, for a number of reasons. And one of them was absolute coincidence. But I think another factor that can't be underestimated is the situation with his wife, Anne-Marie, who really liked Ireland or had links to Ireland, though never been there before, but she had worked in England in a Catholic boarding school. And there were quite a few Irish nuns, and there was one teacher she became very friendly with. And they stayed in contact for the rest of their lives.
1: So a combination of artistic and personal reasons drew him to Ireland. But why did he choose to stay on Ackill Island, apart from the very good reason that it's beautiful? As Gisela explains, it's a very Irish story of informal networks.
0: I think it's, again, coincidence. And the reason why he came to Ireland, at least this is a story I heard from an Irish diplomat who knew in the 1950s and who told me the story that. Bill met an Irish woman in a Cologne bookshop and he asked for a book about Ireland and there was this Irish lady who kind of said, oh, Irish literature, Ireland, here. And she seemed to have given him the keys to her home in Ireland. Now, whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But it is absolutely sure that um, she was called Mora Fleischmann. She had married an Austrian, actually who had been shot down or, well, who had to had an emergency landing in Ireland during the war and then spent the rest of the war in the car. <laughs> and that was George Fleischmann or Georg Fleischmann, very interesting character um, altogether. And um, he was a photographer. He, he was actually really good as a photographer and as a cameraman. He had um, assisted Leni Riefenstahl with Olympia. So, I mean, very interesting background altogether. He stayed in Ireland after the war. He obviously got married. And then he was the first port of contact for Heinrich Böll. And he traveled around with Georg Fleischmann to Limerick and to a number of other places and fell in love with the country as if he hadn't been in love with it before. But now he actually fell in love with it. He writes home that this is the most beautiful country. He's absolutely delighted with it. And then Georg Fleischmann, or George Fleischmann, um, had this contact with an R- RTE man, I think called Podrick O'Reilly, whose father, I think, was a teacher in Eccle Island who knew Tony Gallagher, who said, I have the place for you or for your German friend. This is it. And they just accepted that. The whole family then went over for several months without ever seeing the place or knowing anything. They had just the instructions of how to get there. And that was Eckel And from then then on, they just went back every single year.
1: That's such a charming tale of how people can build links between countries based on their personal relationships. But I'm fascinated by Anne-Marie Bull, because she was an important translator of Irish literature into German, as Gisela explained.
0: She is absolutely interesting. And it's not only her personal experience of having got to know real Irish people long before Heinrich Böll did, but also their shared love of Irish literature and Anne-Marie actually being one of the key translators of Irish literature into German, something that is very often forgotten. And officially it was herself and Heinrich Böll who translated them, but I think that had more to do because he was better known and so they probably would have got better uh, remuneration for it. But it was really she doing all the work. And Heinrich Böhl says it himself, like 90% of the work is done by Anne-Marie. And I'm just enjoying working with her and maybe kind of discussing things with her. But she's really very important as a cultural translator in her own right.
1: The long holidays on Ackle gave them both time to work. In the years when Anne-Marie visited Ireland, she translated Brendan Behan and Flan O'Brien, among others. Her work shaped German speakers' literary experience of Ireland for decades and in turn, Bull wrote a little book that has had a lasting effect on Irish-German relations. Irish's Tagusbuch was a big seller on its publication in 1957 and translated as Irish Journal in 1967. It's still very popular in Germany today. But Bull also made a film about Ireland and that provoked very strong emotions among the Irish, as Gazella outlined.
0: It caused quite a stir at the time. In fact, there was an apology demanded from the West German government for portraying Ireland like that. It was called Children of Error," or Irland und seine Kinder in German. And um, it was shown in Germany, I think, in 1960 or 1961, and that was kind of showing children as kind of going to school and they're not going to school that early because when they're children, Ireland loves the children. It kind of that Ireland is fairly harsh on its population when people grow up. And he had this theme about emigration and that people had to leave Ireland and um that also writers had to leave Ireland. So there was a bit of criticism there. But it was all um very Um, artfully done and that was um, perceived at least as such in Germany where people were kind of oh beautiful like a rhapsody like a music piece and um, in in Ireland it was somewhat different in the reaction and people felt or at least one of the critics felt portrayed as that the Irish were portrayed as one of the most hopeless and hapless races on earth or something but I mean there are explanations for that because Böll was taken so much by the life on Eccle Island now Eccle Island was not maybe the life that people in Dublin aspire to as the ideal life. And of course, one has to take into account that the film was shown only in 1965 in Ireland, without mentioning that it had been shot five years earlier. Ireland had quite a positive economic development in the meantime. And there comes this film where people are not, the children aren't necessarily running barefoot, but there's a bit of that. And there is something about the negative export balance and that, well, everyone has to leave. So, of course, that was seen as something not flattering, although Bull meant no criticism whatsoever.
1: Poor Bull. He experienced the same thin-skinned, overly defensive mentality that led to the banning of the Taylor and Anstey in 1942. He himself wasn't very offended by the reaction, and kept visiting Ackle until the 70s. In the end, work and international commitments changed his habits. Ireland had already done her work for Bull, supplying him with literary frameworks and idyllic summer holidays. But he never knew that he had been banned by the Irish censor. One of the features of the regime was that authors or publishers were never informed they had been censored. Can you imagine the postal bill if they'd written to everyone they banned? They could have bankrupted the state. At last, it's time to play censorship bingo. As I said, this is not a graphic or explicit book, so I'll try not to get my hopes up for a high score. We begin, as usual, with breasts. And I don't think there were any boob references in this book. Bestiality, definitely not. Sex work. Yes, we can take that one. Poor Greg Spree in Frankfurt is the notable example. Racism. Given he discusses the concentration camps and meditates on the nature of Jewishness, I think we can take that. Drugs. No, no drugs. Politics. This is undoubtedly a political book, as all war novels are. Böll is one of Germany's most important post-war authors because he wrote with the political agenda in mind. He was sceptical that the 1950s economic revival was the best solution for Germany's ills. He had hoped for a different kind of rebuilding after the war and he argued for it throughout his work in the 50s and 60s. There's a German think tank called the Heinrich Böll Foundation and it's aligned with the Green Party so that tells you about his political leanings. This book is all about defeat in war, a complicated emotional place for most Germans in the 1950s. So yeah, it's definitely full of politics, although maybe not the type easily recognisable to an Irish censor. Next up, swearing. No, no swearing. The language seems restrained and demure, but it could be the translation I'm working from. Infidelity. Yes, the brief reference to affairs. Crime. He doesn't really get into the nature of war crimes very much in this book. Not explicitly anyway. Genitalia. No, nothing. Abortion. Nothing at all. Orgies. Definitely not. Sexual assault. Yes, there's a glancing reference when Feinhals realises that him and his compatriots are seen as wolves by the women of the occupied countries And there's a sexual assault that occurs in the transport on the way to the concentration camp. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, very briefly at the end. Masturbation. No, definitely not. Sex toys. No way. No feminism. No divorce. No contraception. No menstruation. Blasphemy. I don't think the reference to Adam can be interpreted as blasphemous. Oral sex. No, not at all. Graphic violence. Oddly, given it's about war, there isn't a lot of violence in this book. And finally, queer content. Yes, that one tiny reference early on in the book. In total, and where were you, Adam, earned 7 out of 25. But that's only because I worked really damn hard at it. And I was very literal minded. So you wouldn't read this book for the smut. Indeed, I feel like I have committed a crime against literature by even trying. And Where Were You, Adam, is a very interesting book with an open, easy style that's pleasant to read. If you like your war novels angry, this may not be for you, but I found it compelling. It's satirical without being openly or grotesquely mocking. I was thinking about Catch-22 as I read it because an army hospital features prominently in this book as well. Bull gently shows the folly of patching people up, healing them in order to send them out to kill or be killed. It's obviously morally insane. It's a perfect illustration of the contradiction at the heart of organised killing. His dedication to revealing the humanity of men who pass through the narrative is a political statement about military life and how it robs men of individuality. This is a finely balanced narrative that doesn't indulge in too much anger or sentiment. It's well worth a read. I'd recommend it. But I still don't know why it was banned. For the next episode, I'm leaving the battlefields of Europe behind and tackling the minefield of teenage girls. I've already read The Catcher in the Rye featuring adolescent boys and I wanted to find a female version of the coming-of-age narrative. So I've chosen Pamela Moore's Chocolates for Breakfast from 1956. It's not a famous book like Catcher, but maybe it's time to add it to the canon of literary teenage angst. And I have a stellar guest lined up too. I'm hoping there would be nudity, strops and age inappropriate sexual behaviour in the book. Not for me and my guest. Till then, I'm going to use Heinrich Bull's optimistic example to help me through these pandemic lockdown days.